0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Re-Release Mondays. Here's the re-release of the 2021 Pfizer-funded series, Emerging Mechanisms of Action in the Treatment of Moderate Tavir alopecia areata in Children, with Dr. Britt Craiglow and Dr. Leslie Costello-Socio as program chairs. This is the second of three webinars, Alopecia areata, the science, with Dr. Ali Jabari and Dr. John O'Shea. Click the link in the show notes to view the webinar in its entirety in video format. Hello and welcome to the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance special series, Emerging Methods of Action in the Treatment of Moderate to Severe Alopecia Areata in Children. This is part two of six, the science. A special thanks to Pfizer for supporting this program with a grant. The program chairs who helped develop this uh, Alopecia Areata program are Dr. Leslie Costello-Socio, assistant professor of dermatology and pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania, Pearlman School of Medicine, and director of research in the section of dermatology at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Also, Dr. Britt Craiglow, adjunct associate professor of dermatology at Yale, and she also sees patients in private practice in Fairfield, Connecticut. With that, I would like to turn it over to Dr. Castello-Socio to introduce Dr. John O'Shea.
1: Um, I'm really honored to introduce Dr. John O'Shea. Um, to start to introduce the science of, um, of jacks and um, of cytokines that are related to the immunology of alopecia areata. As many of you know, Dr. O'Shea is the scientific director of NIAMS, and he is really one of the periarchs of cytokines and jacks and tyrosine kinases. Um, he is um, well known for his mentoring, which is really important to me, as well as um, you know, obviously scientifically um, you know, well published with over 200 articles and um, so many honors. Um, and we learned tonight, he's a huge guitar enthusiast um, and he actually plays in a rock band with Dr. Francis Collins, which is pretty amazing. Um, so, I'm thrilled to um, hear his talk and learn um, about um, Jack inhibitors.
2: Thanks very much, Leslie. So, my job is to talk about Jack inhibitors for the next 15 or 20 minutes or so. Um, my disclosures are shown here. Um, the NIH and I have a patent related to Jack inhibitors. But again, if others of you have heard my talk, you can be relieved that I haven't made, I've made literally hundreds of dollars over the years. Um, And I also have a collaboration with Pfizer that just ended this year, but we've collaborated for probably a quarter century or so. And um, also, I'll be talking about um, off-label use of drugs, and I'll include uh, references where appropriate. So you've probably seen uh, um, slides like this many times, um, and it's not for alopecia areata per se, but Um, Most autoimmune diseases are like this. You have this confusing array of all sorts of cytokines um, sort of in a bewildering sort of pattern here. Um, But um, I wanted to point out a couple of things on this slide. um, And that is that there are probably about 200 or so things in the human genome that you can call, call cytokines. And they're obviously critical for host defense, immunoregulation, but from your perspective autoimmunity But um, cytokines also do a bunch of other things, including they're important from hematopoiesis, tissue repair, homeostasis, growth of of the individuals and metabolism. And so uh, one thing, of course, then now that we have drugs available is how do you keep track of these things if you don't spend all day, every day, worrying about cytokines? And why are are they important? And just a clue is I'll get to in a moment um, on this particular slide, um, the jack dependent cytokines are illustrated um, and uh, other cytokines have different colors, but that's going to be sort of answering this question. So the way I put cytokines together is to think about them in terms of the receptors that they bind. So there's seven major classes of cytokine receptors shown here, starting with type 1, type 2 cytokine receptors, but also TNF receptors, IL-1-related receptors, IL-17 receptors, Some cytokines bind receptor tyrosine kinases. There's a a number of TGF beta receptors, and I've included here chemokine receptors. And we learned about these um, cytokines and receptors sort of during the molecular biology revolution of the 1980s and 1990s. And then in the 90s, we also uh, learned about the, the ability to target all of these cytokines through biologics, and I've given a bunch of examples for the different categories shown here. Um, these, of course, are not biologics, but um, I just included these as targeted therapies for your consideration. But um, what became clear with um, the use of biologics is as impressive as they were, and as revolutionary in many respects as they were, many patients had incomplete responses um, and were, uh, complete remission was, um, was, was rare. And so um, um, we considered, uh, we, we and others considered other options. And that was thinking about how cytokines signal and can you target um, molecules intracellularly, um, therapeutically and have them be efficacious and safe. And the field of cytokine signaling sort of blew apart in, um, in the early nineties, especially with the work of Sandra Pellegrini and George Stark. Um, who were making um, cells that were um, 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 mutant cells that lacked responses to interferons, and and the big breakthrough came when they showed that they could correct the defects in one of the cell lines by expressing this um, tyrosine kinase. You know, um, 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 it's actually tick two. It's got a, I see a typo here. Tyrosine kinase two but a sort of a vague sounding name and that restored um, interferon signaling. And then um, the rest of this picture came together pretty quickly with the discovery of stat family transcription factors by the Darnell lab, looking using um, promoters from interferon inducible genes as bait for, um, for uh, DNA binding proteins. And in this case, it was the stats. So I just wanted to illustrate um, quickly to keep, you know, get in, in your mind that um, some cytokines use Jax and Stats, um, but not all of those 200 cytokines. So cytokines like IL-1, TNF, IL-17, et cetera, don't, don't use um, Jax. And so that will be relevant for discussion more uh, really about, um, about safety, uh, about efficacy rather than, um, start again, about um, uh, safety rather than uh, the efficacy. Um, as we'll get to, targeting JAKs at present, uh, first-generation jacks target 57 or so cytokines, but, but not all cytokines. And that's depicted here. But um, we learned a lot about um, the roles of um, jacks and stats in these mutant cell lines that I was referring to before. But at the time, we really didn't understand um, exactly what would happen when you targeted jacks in vivo. And that you might've guessed that would come from making knockout mice and and this sort of thing, but that's not how it unfolded. The way it unfolded was shown on this slide here. So when we cloned Jack 3 we cloned it out of um, immune cells. And um, I had been working previously in in lab um, next to Warren Leonard shown here. And Warren Leonard was the person who cloned the IL-2 receptor alpha chain. And in in putting together the understanding of um, the complete IL-2 receptor, uh, Warren Leonard recognized that the shared receptor subunit um, for this family, IL 24791521, IL 2 receptor gamma chain, um, is the basis of X linked severe combined immunodeficiency. And because we had um, cloned JAK3 out of immune cells, we were thinking that might be a possibility that JAK3 associated with the common gamma chain. And that turned out to be the case. We did that with Warren Leonard. And then when he found that um, mutations of, um, of the common gamma chain resulted in X-linked severe combined immunodeficiency. We predicted that, well, perhaps maybe mutations of JAK3 would phenocopy mutations of XKID. And uh, people like Gigi Notarangelo and Rebecca Buckley were following this field closely, and in fact, um, identified um, such patients. And we collaborated with Gigi Fabio-Candati and uh, Rebecca Buckley to identify the first individuals who had mutations of JAK3. Um, Now, in that paper, um, we made this bold claim that if you targeted JAKs, you'd get a new class of immunosuppressive molecules. But in fact, like in a lot of things in science, um, um, we knew that this was the case about two years before I had started, um, um, I'd met Paul Chingallian at Pfizer, and we had started collaborating uh, on this project to see if this in fact was uh, a feasible concept. Um, And this is where we are now, of course, that there are nine approved JAK inhibitors listed here. Ruxolitinib was the first JAK inhibitor approved for for an orphan disease, myeloproliferative neoplasms, and now um, acute GVHD. Uh, tofacitinib was is, is the Pfizer drug and is approved for rheumatoid arthritis, uh, psoriatic arthritis, juvenile arthritis, and ulcerative colitis. Uh, the next approved um, um, JAK inhibitor uh, is baricitinib, which was approved for rheumatoid arthritis, atopic dermatitis in, in Europe, and now um, COVID nineteen. Um, and maybe we can discuss this a bit. A bit of a surprise. Um, this the baricitinib being useful in in this context. Um, uh, also, uh, um, several other jack inhibitors, and, and I'll have a bit more to say about the selective jack inhibitors like upadacitinib, folgotinib, et cetera. Um, but of course, we can't forget um, the jack inhibitor for dogs, oklacitinib, approved for treatment with atopic dermatitis. And, and I, I would say if, if any of you... Um, Your dogs are on jack inhibitors, please do send me pictures, uh, preferably before and after. Um, It's it's always heartwarming to see um, dogs smiling and wagging their tails after um, being on jack inhibitors. A number of other um, trials are ongoing, and I've listed them here. I won't go through all of the details here, but just um, again, um, a wide variety of of indications, including um, inherited. Um, uh, interferonopathies, including Down syndrome and other auto-inflammatory disease uh, diseases, and, and a wide number of other indications. Just quickly, I wanted to touch on this this point here. This was at the, um, last year's ACR meeting, and the efficacy of um, JAK inhibitors are clear in in rheumatoid arthritis. So the uh, the great debate at that time was, well, maybe we shouldn't wait for JAK inhibitors. Uh, uh, to start, jack inhibitors after we use biologics, maybe we should consider using jack inhibitors first. Um, and there are data showing that jack inhibitors are effective when biologics don't work. Um, they have a quicker onset of action compared to biologics, especially in terms of pain, which I think is a particularly interesting part of this. Um, um, these findings, uh, they're convenient because they're oral. Generics are coming soon. Um, they have a short half-life, which has which has. Um, advantages in a number of situations. And at the time when they're making this um, sort of argument, um, it, it was sort of put forth that Jack inhibitors, uh, the safety of Jack inhibitors, were really equivalent to biologics except for herpes zoster. But I'll have more to say about that in, in just a few seconds. And that is just to refu- review the adverse events with Jack inhibitors. And as we would have predicted from, you know, making this prediction in patients who had severe combined immunodeficiency. Infections are seen in patients on JAK inhibitors, but maybe a surprise is that generally infections are comparable to what you see with uh, biologics, again, except for herpes zoster. Uh, You see cytopenias with first-generation JAK inhibitors. That's because they also target uh, uh, JAK2, which is used for signaling by a number of hematopoietic cytokines. You see increased uh, lipids, and that's presumably related to IL-6 inhibition or, or possibly leptin as well. Um, that's some debate as to exactly how much you're affecting um, um, cardiovascular risk. Uh, Thrombombolic events have been noted, um, venous thrombo- thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. And again, exactly why that is, um, maybe related to TPO, um, maybe JAK2, again, not totally clear. Uh, You see increased creatinine, increased transaminases, GI perforation, again, mechanism largely unclear. When the FDA was first um, uh, reviewing these drugs, they were concerned about cancer. Um, Obviously, if you think about blocking things like interferon gamma, et cetera, et cetera, and blocking um, T cells in general, um, one would raise that concern. They issued a report um, earlier this year in in February, and, and the quote is here, that there's a higher occurrence of serious heart-related events and cancer in RA patients treated with uh, tofacitinib compared to patients with a TNF inhibitor. So that that's sort of the key point. The, the trial has not been published yet. Um, remains to be seen. You know all the usual details of you know getting into the gritty and gritty details of uh, of, of a paper such as this. Um, but it's worthwhile pointing out that these patients. Um, we're on, on TNF inhibitors, and so we actually in this don't, don't really know sort of the background occurrence of all of these um, adverse events here. Um, so so stay tuned for that. This will be an important um, trial to keep your eyes open for. Okay, just going back to Jack's structure, how they got their names there. They have a kinase domain and a kinase-like domain named after the Roman god Janus shown here, there are four jacks: Jack one, Jack two, Jack three, and Tick two. Again, Tick two is, is a member of the Janus kinase family. It's structurally the same as the other jacks. Um, I'll, I'll come back to this kinase don't like domain in a moment, um, and then just going through after uh, our report of the Jack three deficient patients. Um, uh, the, as you would imagine, all of the knockouts were, were generated rather quickly. Jak3 knockouts were made, and they too have combined immunodeficiency. TIC2 knockouts have viral susceptibility. Patients, um, um, human patients with um, um, TIC2 loss-of-function mutations have been identified, and they too have um, infection. Um, There's a human loss of of function polymorphism, uh, relatively common, um, that's associated with decreased risk of autoimmunity and impaired signaling by interferons IL-10, IL-12, IL-23. JAK1 knockout uh, is is perinatally lethal in in mice and was associated with combined immunodeficiency. I believe there's one human um, uh, that has been described with JAK1 loss of function mutations, and you'll see why that might be a rare event. That patient had multiple infections, including herpes zoster, atypical mycobacterial infection, and early onset bladder cancer. Um, There is, uh, I think, two patients described with JAK1 gain of function mutations and that those children have auto-inflammatory disease. Uh, JAK2 uh, knockout is embryonically lethal because of defective hematopoiesis.
1: So again the, the
2: scorecard here and again it's it's busy but the point is actually a simple one and that is that jack1 is important uh, of the 57 cytokines that use uh, the jack stat pathway jack1 is important for a large number of these cytokines jack2 also uh, equally large number shown here um jack3 really um, is important for only the cytokines as best we know IL24 15, and 21 tick2 um, encompasses uh, um, a smaller proportion of cytokines, but bearing in mind that there are 14 interferon alphas, et cetera, um, um, but again, a restricted number of cytokines compared to Jack one and Jack 2 So here's just sort of to summarize these findings is that um, the first generation uh, JAK inhibitors um, inhibited again, uh, have the capacity to inhibit a large number of cytokines, potentially um, almost all of the 57 cytokines. When you get to selective JAK1 inhibitors and selective tick 2 inhibitors, you're now um, inhibiting a smaller um, um, spectrum of, of, of cytokines. There are selective JAK2 inhibitors for oncological indications, and there is a selective JAK3 inhibitor. And again, um, I'm not gonna go through all the details of this, but just to you know, show you the names again, JAK1 selective inhibitors approved for rheumatoid arthritis, multiple ongoing trials, Philgotinib, a selective JAK1 inhibitor um, approved uh, in Europe, but not in the United States. I should point out that eupidocytinib um, patients on eupidocytinib can have anemia. So, again, it's, it's selective, selective ish maybe would be the word. Um, also, itocytinib and abracytinib, the Pfizer compound with ongoing trials, and atopoderm um, psoriasis. Um, There are TIC2-selective inhibitors. Um, Dicravacitinib is the BMS compound. Uh, It's being tested in psoriasis, Crohn's, um, um, SLE. And this targets the kinase-like domain. And I'll I'll repeat that in just a moment. Peprocitinib is a TIC2-JAC1 inhibitor from Pfizer um, with ongoing trials, including alopecia areata, and another uh, um, TIC2-selective inhibitor from Pfizer. It doesn't have a generic name yet. So just getting back to this point about targeting the kinase-like domain. So most JAK inhibitors are competitive ATP antagonists. So this is the catalytic domain of of JAK3. And you can see ATP and and tofacitinib overlaid um, in in this cleft. And um, this is um, what the the, um, JAK kinase-like domain uh, interacting with pseudokinase domain looks like. But I just sort of remind you that the um, Ducravacitinib is actually binding the pseudokinase domain. So in principle, might have an advantage in terms of specificity. There are combined inhibitors coming along. Ritlacitinib is actually a JAK3-TECH family kinase uh, inhibitor. So it inhibits these TECH family kinases, ITK, TECH, BTK, RLK, BMX. BTK, as you know, is the basis of X-linked egg anemia. So in principle, um, um, Ritlacitinib could inhibit cytokine signaling, um, but also BCR and TCR signaling. Ongoing trials uh, listed here and, and some reported uh, efficacy, but basically um, no really unexpected uh, adverse events, even though it uh, inhibits JAK3, but also um, other, other signaling um, pathways. Gucacitinib is a JAK. SICK inhibitor, and SICK is important for B-cell receptor signaling, FC receptor signaling, interfer- integrin signaling. Gusacitinib has been um, um, studied in phase two trials in atopic dermatitis, and those um, papers have been published. OK, so um, that's the quick um, picture of um, my introduction to jack inhibitors um, with, again, jack inhibitors misspelled. Sorry about that. Um, um, but lots of questions, and I'll just put these up, and maybe we can return to these later. Um, I think really the big question relates to efficacy and which cytokines are being inhibited in what cells, what phase of the disease, and then, of course, what does that mean in terms of how you're going to treat patients? Really, what's the best dose to use? Do we, do we have the best dose for induction and maintenance? Um in terms of measuring specificity, how do we really do that? There's a variety of assays you could use to, to think about specificity. Um, um, but really, it, what it comes down to is um, if a patient is on a, a Jack inhibitor, do, do you see anemia, et cetera, et cetera, and other things? Um, how do we use Jack inhibitors with other, other drugs? Uh, I alluded to that um, in the AC, ACR um, great debate. Um, do we use Um, biologics first, and if they fail, then switch to JAK inhibitors. Do you use JAK inhibitors first and then put patients on maintenance phase? Um, What other drugs are safely used? All all of which uh, we know some some of this, but we need to know much more. Um, Going to the issue of COVID, um, the fact that baricitinib is used and it's efficacious in COVID patients makes one think that, um, again, we should be thinking more about um, dose of jack inhibitors and and possibly um, intravenous uh, short acting rapid, you know, uh, um, acting um, jack inhibitors and I think I will stop right there.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. O'Shea. That was so great, and I think there are some questions that have come in, but we will address those um, a little bit later after Dr. Jabari um, speaks. So we're going to move now. Um, excellent overview of Jack inhibitors. And then we're going to, talk about, um, or Dr. Jabari is going to tell us about the rationale for their use in alopecia areata. So Dr. Jabari, um, we're really honored to have him with us tonight. He's an associate professor of dermatology at the University of Iowa, um, where he is a jack of all trades. He runs a basic science laboratory. He supervises the resident-run hair clinic, and he's the PI for their alopecia areata registry there. Um, He's done really groundbreaking work in helping us to understand the pathways, um, the basic science pathways in alopecia areata, which really has, um, you know, started to pave the way for more reliably effective therapies for our patients. Um, and he at home has five kids. We just learned, so, sorry, three kids, three kids under five. So he um, he's busy at work and he's busy at home. And I um, think we're all going to really enjoy his talk tonight.
4: Thank you for that great introduction. I hope everyone can hear me okay. Um, So today I'm gonna be talking about alopecia areata pathogenesis and specifically some of the preclinical rationale for using JAK inhibitors. And a lot of this comes from um, the mouse models that we use to study the disease. Um, uh, My conflicts of interest arise mostly from uh, doing some of this preclinical work for some companies as well as uh, serving as a site PI for some of the clinical trials. I will be mentioning off-label use of JAK inhibitors and I will be talking about animal models of the disease and all the research um, that I'm gonna be talking about using these animal models complies with all the guidelines and protocols that are appropriate. So um, many of us here um, see patients with alopecia areata, but just as a review, Um, These patients often present with uh, circular patches of hair loss, as you can see here on the upper left. Uh, This often uh, affects the scalp, but can really affect any hair-bearing surface, as you can see here on the bottom left, uh, affecting this individual's kind of beard area. Um, Disease can be multifocal, and um, sometimes these areas can grow, coalesce, and involve not only the entire scalp, but the entire body surface area. Um, in some cases, you get some interesting um, patterns. This is called the or excuse me, the opiasis pattern that involves the uh, temporal parietal and occipital scalp. And it's important to note that the majority of patients that have alopecia areata um, get the disease at some point uh, before the age of 20. So just to round up um, the epidemiology, um, males and females seem to get the disease at about an equal rate. Um, there might be a slight uh, female predominance. There's a 2% lifetime risk, so approximately 7 million cases in the U.S. Uh, as already mentioned, most patients that get the disease will have their first episode uh, uh, when they're younger than 20 years old. Um, it, as I'm sure you guys have talked about in earlier sessions, it, it has significant impacts on the quality of life and self-esteem of these individuals, can be associated with other uh, autoimmune diseases, and historically has been treated with broad, local, or systemic immunosuppressants that really haven't worked particularly well or or that have um, uh, potential for worrisome side effects if used in in the long-term. And the etiology for the disease is largely unknown, uh, despite the fact that the disease has been uh, well-known in the medical literature uh, for a very long time. Up here on the upper right is a uh, illustration from a medical textbook from the 1800s that seems to be depicting alopecia areata. And uh, down here on the bottom right, is what's called the Ebers papyrus. I think that's how you pronounce it, um, which um, uh, has been dated back to 1500 BCE and uh, describes spotted baldness and the kind of interesting uh, treatments that were used at that time for the disease. Um, But we know now that there are some genetic associations in part um, uh, due to the work of uh, Lynn Pachikova and Angela Cristiano And um, there's this question of um, whether stress is related to the disease or not. And I think that's that's, uh, somewhat controversial. But if we're thinking about alopecia areata and and if we take a look at what it looks like under the microscope, uh, we see in individuals with the disease, their hair follicles um, are surrounded and usually this infiltrate that we see um, uh, uh, under the microscope is usually centered around uh, the peribulber or the bulb of the hair follicle. Now, this is in contrast uh, to the normal um, uh, hair follicle in in the growth phase, where there's really a posse immune uh, uh, environment here. And one important point that I'm not going to talk about a lot today, um, but is important to mention, is this concept of immune privilege of the hair follicle. And that really describes the low level of expression of MHC class one um, that's present on the hair follicular epithelium normally. However, in alopecia areata, we see an upregulation of this MHC class one and a a more pro-inflammatory kind of environment. And if you'll remember, MHC class one is the way the it's the kind of complex that allows the immune system to survey what the contents of the cell is. So normal antigen hair follicles are usually somewhat invisible to the immune system, whereas in uh, alopecia areata, it's, it's much more readily um, uh, interrogated by the immune system. And so most of the studies I'm gonna be talking about today make use of the C3H-HEJ mouse model of alopecia areata. This is a pretty common uh, lab strain of mouse. Uh, And it was observed uh, a couple of decades ago now that these mice spontaneously develop disease. It's a relatively low rate, about 10 to 20% of mice, and it takes about a year for them to develop the disease. But it shares many of the features of uh, alopecia areata and has been uh, very uh, informative as the pathogenesis of the disease. So just as a framework for the rest of uh, what we're talking about, I just want to start off by Um, talking about some uh, large unbiased studies that were done um, to determine what are the major signaling pathways or the major uh, cell signatures that are present, not only in the disease in people, but also in the mouse model. So uh, what was done was um, uh, biopsies were taken from AA patients and normal control patients, and the same was done uh, for the mice. A, A skin sample was taken from an affected mouse or affected mice and compared to that of unaffected mice. And um, these um, samples were then interrogated using microarray technology to ask which genes or pathways are different in alpes areata when compared with normal samples. And whenever you do a microarray or an RNA-seq type study, you get a list of upregulated and downregulated genes that really look like a basically like an alphabet soup, but it becomes really helpful when you can start putting these into categories. So when this was done, um, the, there were three major pathways or, or profiles that came up. The first was CD8 T cells or, or CD8 T cell activity. The second was the interferon pathway, which you've already heard a little bit about. And the last one was the common gamma chain cytokine pathway. Um, and again, we'll, we'll hit the highlights of each of these um, for the next uh, 10 minutes or so. So first talking about um, the T cells, and and this kind of reminds us of studies that were done in 2005, um, where people were interested in figuring out what are the critical cell types that can induce disease or what cell types are sufficient to induce disease. And what the McElwee group did was they took mice that had already developed disease spontaneously, harvested the skin-draining lymph nodes, and injected those into recipient mice to ask whether those cells could induce disease in those mice. And when they took um, uh, lymph nodes from an AA mouse, they were able to induce disease in the majority of those uh, recipient mice, whether that be a localized uh, disease or more systemic disease. For for the purposes of uh, today, it really doesn't matter which one, um, but they were able to induce disease with these uh, uh, lymph node cells. And this contrasted with that of lymph nodes that were derived from mice that didn't already have alopecia areata. Then the authors went on to specifically sort out the CD8 T cell population and ask the same question if they injected those into recipient mice, could they induce disease? And indeed, they could in all the mice that, they, um, um, that received the cells. And then they asked if CD4 T cells could do the same and um, not quite as robust as the CD8 T cell population, but indeed, they could get cells or they could get mice to exhibit disease after they've received CD4 cells. So then in thinking about uh, these T cell populations, there was a study that came out um, from uh, Lynn Petrikova and in uh, the Cristiano lab, um, looking at uh, what genes were associated with the disease. And they ran what's called a large genome-wide association study, and they found uh, places in the genome that were associated with alopecia areata. And this is a Manhattan plot here on the x-axis is the position in the genome marked by chromosomes, and on the y-axis is a measure of statistical significance. And they found uh, eight loci, and these loci were all closely associated with genes in that same region. And uh, the authors of this paper um, paid particular attention to the second highest or the second most statistically significant locus, Uh, which was found close to two genes, the ULBP genes, ULBP3 and ULBP6. Now, these genes are ligands for a receptor called NKG2D. And NKG2D is found on T cells and other cell types. And the authors uh, of this paper then went on to look at expression of ULBP3 in hair follicles in patients with alopecia areata and found, as you can see here on the right, uh, marked in red, high expression of ULBP3 in those patients but not in normal control patients that didn't have alopecia areata. And then they went on to describe that um, NKG2D was expressed in cells that made up the immune infiltrate or that swarm of bees, so to speak, around the um, uh, bulb. And they were found on CD8 T cells. And this also held true uh, for the mouse model. So these are flow cytometry plots on the x-axis is CD8, on the y-axis is NKG2D. And uh, when you look into mice that have alopecia areata, you can find a pretty robust population in the skin or in the skin-draining lymph nodes of these NKG2D-expressing CDAT cells. And these are largely absent from those mice that don't have the disease. So then to take it one step further, it was asked whether those CDAT cells that express NKG2D were sufficient to induce disease. So uh, taking lymph node cells from mice that Uh, had alopecia areata, and specifically sorting out that population and injecting them into recipient mice uh, led to those mice developing disease. And in contrast, CD8 T cells from the same lymph nodes that didn't express that NKG2D receptor um, didn't cause uh, those recipient mice to develop disease. So now we know CD8 T cells uh, are able to transfer disease, and CD4 T cells from alopecia areata mice are able to transfer disease. So How how do these two cell types, how do they coordinate with each other to cause AA? Are both cell types needed simultaneously? Is one cell type, um, uh, does one cell type need to act first before the other one occurs? Um, And so we ask these questions. And these, this is unpublished data, so not quite as vetted, not vetted um, uh, like the other um, data slides that I showed. But I think it's helpful when we're thinking about the pathogenesis of the disease Um, So if you take activated CD4 T cells from an AA mouse and inject those into recipient mice and then deplete those mice of CD8 T cells. So you're asking whether CD4 T cells in the absence of CD8 T cells can cause disease. And we found that they could not. So if you inject in CD4 T cells and just um, uh, use an antibody that doesn't deplete CD8 T cells, you get pretty robust disease. 100% of mice develop uh, disease over the course of uh, six or seven weeks. However, if you deplete those mice of CD8 T cells, um, those mice are largely protected from developing AA. And so we wanted to ask the inverse question. Do CD8 T cells require CD4 T cells to induce AA? So instead, we injected CD8 T cells and depleted CD4 T cells and asked the same question. And we found that both um, mice depleted of CD4 cells and mice that were not depleted of CD4 cells developed disease at uh, roughly the same rate. So to just take a step back for a moment and kind of put these together in a model, we can kind of think of it in this way where CD4 T cells, maybe they come in first and they act directly on CD8 T cells that then go on to cause disease. Or we can think of it a slightly different way that CD4 T cells are doing something to the hair follicle to then make them more susceptible to attack by CD8 T cells. Now to go on to the other uh, two pathways, the interferon pathway and the common gamma chain pathway, and to see how those things um, contribute to the pathogenesis of the disease. So interferon gamma, just to review, is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. Um, It's known to increase MHC class one expression on cell types that express the receptor, including in hair follicles. Uh, It activates antiviral pathways, and it increases the expression of molecules uh, like chemokines that bring in the immune system in close proximity. And interferon gamma is produced by CD4, CD8, T cells among other cell types. And so um, a few years ago, uh, uh, this group asked um, if interferon gamma is critical to the development of alopecia areata. And they used a similar model, except instead they induced disease in recipient mice using um, grafts from an AA mice and put those onto unaffected recipient mice. And when they did that, those mice went on to develop uh, hair loss. However, when they put the same graphs on mice that were deficient in interferon gamma, those mice were largely protected from developing the disease, telling us that interferon gamma is a critical component to uh, the pathogenesis of AA. And then uh, finally, to talk about the uh, common gamma chain cytokines, this is a family of cytokines that includes IL-2, 4, 7, 9, 15, and 21. And the receptor for these cytokines are all complexes with mixed subunits, but they all share one particular subunit, this common gamma chain. As you can see here in this cartoon, all of these receptors have this blue subunit. And then the other subunit or subunits uh, confer the specificity to that particular receptor. So uh, the IL-2 receptor beta, for example, with the IL-2 receptor alpha, um, helps bind IL-2. IL, uh, and the IL-4 receptor helps bind IL-4, et cetera, et cetera. And the common gamma chain cytokines, they contribute to survival and maintenance of T-cells. They can provide some level of co-stimulation, so they can help activate uh, T-cells when they're present. And depending on which one you're talking about, they can affect the functioning of the T-cells. So I'm just gonna talk really briefly about one particular common gamma chain cytokine, the uh, IL-15 cytokine. And IL-15 has been described to be present on AA hair follicles. So if you take uh, um, samples from patients with AA and stain for IL-15, you can see that it's present along the follicular epithelium as shown here in green uh, in in those samples from AA patients, but not normal control patients. Um, you can also look for this IL-15RA um, uh, gene or protein that serves as a sort of chaperone to tether IL-15 to the, um, uh, to the cell surface. And it is also present in uh, hair follicles in patients with AA, but not in normal control patients. So it seems like IL-15 is, is present specifically in those AA patients, but not normal controls. But then the question is whether IL-15 is required Uh, for the pathogenesis of AA. So for this, um, the skin graft model was used. So a piece of AA skin was grafted onto recipient mice, and then the receptor was blocked uh, with a neutralizing antibody. And when this is done, if you use a a control antibody, you can can, uh, see that the majority of those mice go on to develop disease. But if you block IL-15 signaling using the uh, anti-IL-15 receptor antibody, you can largely block Um, the emergence of disease in these mice, telling us the IL-15 seems to be critically required for the pathogenesis of AA. And I should uh, mention that similar data has been published for IL-2 and now very recently for IL-7, but not for IL-21, which are all uh, different comma gamma chain cytokines. So the particular uh, cytokine that we're talking about probably matters. And it's interesting because these two pathways, the interferon gamma pathway And the common gamma chain cytokine, and specifically IL-15 pathway, seem to interact with each other uh, to a certain extent. So in this experiment, what was done is uh, interferon gamma, uh, along with another pro-inflammatory cytokine, TNF-alpha, was injected into the skin of the mice. And then a few days later, that skin was biopsied, and and the investigators asked um, whether IL-15 was present on the hair follicle. And indeed, it was in those mice that had received interferon gamma and um, TNF-alpha, but not in those mice that had received uh, the vehicle control. So we can step back for a second and try to put everything together now, <clears throat> including the T-cell data and uh, these the interferon gamma and the common gamma chain cytokine pathway data. And so we think CD4 T-cells are probably first to act. Uh, we know they're able to produce interferon gamma, and that interferon gamma can probably act on the uh, hair follicle to increase um, expression of common gamma chain cytokines including IL-15, chemoattractants like chemokines like we uh, t- briefly touched upon, and that can uh, likely bring in CD8 T cells, which can also produce uh, interferon gamma and may also reinforce this uh, uh, pathway in a positive feedback loop, uh, which will eventually result in their activation and uh, the emergence of disease. So then in thinking about these two major pathways, the common gamma chain cytokine pathway and uh, the interferon pathway, as uh, we've learned today and we've known now uh, for some time, that these pathways all utilize uh, JAK molecules as proximal signaling um, uh, um, factors. Um, And so they participate both for um, both ends of the spectrum. And to view it another way, this is a cartoon that was published a few years ago that looked at the follicular epithelium here on top and looked at the immune component or T cells here on bottom. As you can see here, interferon gamma is produced um, and then is uh, sensed uh, by the receptor on the follicular epithelium, which then causes upregulation of common gamma chain cytokines, including IL-15, which causes activation and stimulation of uh, the immune system which again causes more interferon gamma. And again, you get the self-reinforcing pathway uh, that then leads to alopecia areata. And then these JAK inhibitors, depending on which one you're using and depending on the specificity, um, can inhibit it at the level of the immune uh, system or at the level of the follicular epithelium or potentially at both. So just to briefly touch upon one of the patients that we saw, I didn't really uh, highlight this, but this is one of the patients that we saw pre-JAK inhibitor uh, this is a 12-year-old patient that we started on a JAK inhibitor, uh, inhibitor and just a few months later, even though he had failed other therapies, you can see here that he's doing quite well and it probably is going to continue to progress. And that's all I have. I'm happy to take any questions.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Um, those talks were amazing and put a lot into context in terms of, you know, why we're interested in JAK inhibitors. Um, I think a, a lot of the group is interested in those adverse events Um, and, uh, one question, um, from Dr. Petakova is about whether these, um, adverse events are seen as part of any of the, um, spectrums, uh, phenotypic spectrums of patients with known disease mutations in these JAK pathways. So I don't know if either of you, um, you know, has experience with that. Um, you know, I think certainly weight gain with leptin, but yeah, I'd love your thoughts on that.
4: Yeah. I I mean, I, I think, you know, we know these molecules are really important for, you know, functioning of the immune system and things like that. And, and, and um, they're clearly immunosuppressive. I mean, I, I I don't think they're complete um, uh, knockouts or or they phenocopy complete knockouts. um, But you do see elements of, uh, of um, what we see with, you know, conditional knockouts and things like that in uh, patients getting the disease. I mean, I think uh, a lot of the side effects um, for the majority of patients, are mild, but you know they can be um, pretty significant in patients that that do come down with some of the side effects. So I think it's a, you know, it, it can be relatively safe, but um, you really have to be cautious with these medications.
2: Yeah, I think the yeah. only thing I'd add to that is that as, as you were getting to, is dose matters, um, and that in in some. Patients with, say, uh, auto-inflammatory diseases um, where you need high doses of these drugs to uh, control symptoms, you can have more infections. And in the early trials with uh, kidney transplants where the patients were being treated with cellsep and steroids and, and um, a cocktail of um, 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 drugs, there were uh, a larger incidence of infection more than we see nowadays with the currently approved drugs at the currently approved doses, but it's, it's certainly something to be, think about Um, in terms of the FDA's concern about cardiovascular events and, um, and thromboembolism. I mean, it remains to be seen how that's going to sort of, um, you know, be relevant to uh, younger populations. So again, um, it's, just have to keep our eyes open.
1: And then are you know, this is just, this is my question, but um, are there things that you're worried about in terms of, um, you know, younger patients getting these medicines for long periods of time um, with side effects? Because I think most of us have used them enough to see that short-term there aren't any really big, significant, you know, effects, especially in children. Um, you know, lab values tend to be pretty stable. Um, sometimes we'll see weight gain, you know, occasionally an infection, but to be honest, you know, even herpes virus, I haven't seen very much. Um, uh, but what about, you know, potential long-term, you know, we counsel patients a lot about that. Um, do, you, do you worry, and what would you worry about the most?
4: Well, um, I, I think it, it, it kind of touches upon the conversation we are having earlier Um, Where that you know it has to do with specificity of the particular JAK inhibitor that you're using and and the the array of um, pathways that you might be inhibiting. I I think these more specific ones, uh, uh, you know, we're gonna feel a lot more comfortable about. But you know, especially especially with the JAK two inhibition, we start worrying about things like uh, Dr. O'Shea mentioned earlier about you know growth hormones and, and and things like that.
2: The one thing that I think is worth bearing in mind, uh, you know, are these. There are some cytokines that we don't know much about. You know, out of that 57 cytokines, there, you know, there are a number of neurotropic cytokines um, that actually have been studied um, quite poorly. Uh, you know, the the usual cytokines that you know about, IL two, etc. There are thousands of publications, but a few of these cytokines is really not much known. And so again, um, giving these drugs to patients for a long period of time. Um, that's why you have to do these follow-up trials. The the issues of um, 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 thromboembolism and this sort of thing, I think that wasn't noticed right away. And, and the cardiovascular effects certainly in, in, in rheumatologic patients is something people are thinking about a lot. Um, but again, that's that's yeah. As Ali, Ali was saying, um, you know, when we were first thinking about this, um, and I went around to a lot of drug companies, and they said, "Well, what if we had a Jack two inhibitor?" Mo- most of the you know talking heads at the time would have said, "No, no, Jack two inhibitor. That's just not not viable. You you couldn't possibly, if if you get a hit that inhibits Jack one, Jack two, and Jack three, or something like that, that wouldn't be a good drug." But that turned out not to be true and it's related to dose, um, but it may be that um, some selectivity as we go forward uh, will be preferable. And you might imagine as we sort of predicted in 1995 that um, a drug that just targets Jack 3 might have some advantages, but as of yet, no one has made such a drug, but um, you know, we, we shall see.
3: Uh, we have a question from Dr. Silverman. Um which is what is the cytokine relationship between severe atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata is it related to IL-15?
4: And I'm not really sure what, what the um, role of IL-15 is in, in, in atopic dermatitis. I, I, I mean, other um, uh, comma gamma chain cytokines certainly play a role, um, but I'm not sure about uh, IL-15. Um, the relationship with atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata, I think Um, is certainly there, but um, whether there's a common pathogenesis uh, or um, if it's kind of a byproduct of having um, atopic dermatitis, for example, atopic dermatitis, you can think of there being more inflammation in the skin, so that that might predispose you to lose your immune privilege in in, uh, the hair follicle, which could um, lead to alopecia areata, um, versus um, having common signaling pathways that are consistent between the two I, I think is um, something that remains to be answered.
2: So in a way like, like it or not um, you know some of the advantages of the JAK inhibitors is that many cytokines are blocked so for atopic derm blocking uh, IL-4 and IL-13 is efficacious whereas as you're saying for alopecia areata blocking IL-15 and gamma so it's sort of a, as Ali was saying it's it's you're targeting multiple steps in the pathogenesis. Um, And in a way that may be have some utility. And again, that is one of the reasons why we all like steroids so much is that so much of immune responses are blocked, but that's also the same reason why um, we have side effects as well, Um, remains to be seen.
3: Hair loss often recurs after therapy is discontinued. What is the best way to counsel patients? Dr. (laughs) Jabari, I have an answer to this too, Um, but I want to hear what. Let's see what you say because people ask this all the time. I think this is a very common question.
4: Sure. I I mean, when when I talk to patients, I I let them know that the 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 plan right now is to keep it on the on long term, and that we are we can feel pretty confident um, that if they stop using a jack inhibitor, that they will lose their hair, and and this is different. than uh, what's been shown in the animal models, where in animal models, especially the C3H uh, model, if it's been treated with a jack inhibitor, even a topical jack inhibitor, uh, for a short amount of time, and then you remove the jack inhibitor, they have kind of a long-term, durable effect, um, and that that's not really what we see, as the question kind of alludes to, uh, what we see in people, and, and whether there's. You know, a time frame. Maybe you know, I, I don't know what the longest patient on a jack inhibitor, how long they've been on it for. But maybe if you've been on it for ten years, and then you take off the jack inhibitor, maybe maybe that's enough time to replicate what we see in the mouse. I mean, I think it's largely unknown. So when I counsel patients, I should say that um, there's really no end in sight. It's it's just like other medications; it only works if you take it.
2: So to, to your point, Ali. Um, you know, JAK inhibitors have been on the market now for about a decade, and there are patients who've been on jack inhibitors for nearly that time. Um, but um, people have done trials with rheumatoid arthritis patients where they take off biologics, you know, withdraw and see whether what proportion of patients actually are in durable remissions. Um, those trials haven't been done in um, have, on patients with jack inhibitors yet that probably will be done. But again, I'd, that would be a case where again um, I'd make a pitch for academic labs that, that the drug companies, you know, are, are less inclined to think of this as a priority, um, whereas this is where academic labs are key. And you might even imagine, as I was making the pitch before, that if you got somebody into remission, um, you know, on a jack inhibitor or something, and then you, you know, had, there was a decent drug that targeted IL15 or something, and Ali, whatever your Favorite cytokine. Would be you might imagine, long term, once we got patients into remission, you could treat them with a, another drug that had a more narrow spectrum. Um, but but all that all that's going to be up to academic labs to do.
1: Yeah, I certainly think off label. You know, a lot of people are trying that, right, with getting patients in remission with tofacitinib, and then trying to pixent or some you know something else after, um, with very you know obviously variable success.
3: I think it's interesting. I guess it's because alopecia areata can wax and wane, but I, I think we don't tend to ask this question about other chronic skin disease like psoriasis or atopic dermatitis. Like we just assume that these people are going to continue. So, you know, to me, alopecia areata is a chronic disease that's likely going to require chronic therapy. So that's what I talk about to patients. So like, this is, we're looking at this at least for the foreseeable future. Um, but You know, is it possible that at some point, you know, quieting this inflammation for X amount of time could change the natural history or, you know, maybe, you know, these people who do kind of go up and down, like, I think over time we will, um, we will have more of an idea of like, is, are there subsets of, of patients who may be able to dose reduce more successfully or, you know, is there a period of time that's preferable before you think about tapering? I mean, just anecdotally, like we have a handful of patients who have stop therapy for a variety of reasons who actually have maintained regrowth. And I think there will be some data from the, um, from the ongoing clinical trials where, you know, people, they do kind of a washout and they look at, re- they'll look at recapture. So there'll be some more systematic data, but for sure, I think it will be interesting. And, and again, like, you know, look at the biologics for psoriasis, like people we're getting more and more targeted over time. So probably, you know, if, it, if it's not this drug, maybe you'll get, you'll be on something else, but the side effect profile would be more favorable. Or...
1: There's, there's one other, I think one question that just came in, um, and maybe we'll end after that, but any speculation about how to reestablish the immune privilege around the hair follicles? So that's a huge question.
4: <laughs> that, that's a really great question. And I, I, I think, you know, what are those factors or guardians uh, of immune privilege and, and what are they in in vivo and what are the important factors there um in under normal circumstances and, and it, it really it's largely unknown I mean there's a, a good number of candidates uh that we think are contributing um but you know it, it's really anyone's guess as to what might be uh, largely responsible or, or if it's kind of uh by committee that you know, a a good number of factors need to be present in order for that to be maintained.
1: Yeah, thank you both very much for, you know, taking time today to um, present the wonderful lectures and then um, give like great answers to um, these questions.
0: A very big thank you to our presenters this evening, Dr. Ali Jabari and Dr. John O'Shea. Thank you for those wonderful presentations. I'd also like to thank our program directors, Dr. Leslie Castello-Socio and Dr. Britt Craiglow.